0: This is where scientists, philosophers, New Agers, and spiritualists come together to discuss where this world may be heading. Now here's your host, lawyer, philosopher, and the author of The Collapse of Materialism, Philip Camella. The notion that there is one mind is as old as thought itself. The early Upanishads, written thousands of years ago, state about how truly the self is mind truly the world is mine truly brahman is mind and then verily in the beginning this world was brahman one only being one he was not developed and then the story goes out about how the de- brahman develops the world out of the one mind now in our modern era we could approach this concept of the one mind as some kind of mystical otherworldly concept or we could try to take it as an hypothesis like a scientific hypothesis and apply it to our world and our daily lives and this is not as strange as it might seem because in the scientific realm we have something called the quantum field which starts looking a little bit like the one mind and many writers have noted the similarities. Today we're going to be speaking with somebody, Sunita Pantani, who has written a book who has applied this concept of the one mind, which she calls the transcendent mind, to psychotherapy to emotional health. Now she is a psychotherapist and and an author based in East London, and she specializes in exploring the link between mind, body, spirit, and emotional healing. She's a regular blogger on Huffington Post and her second book, which I just mentioned, is called The Transcendent Mind, The Missing Peace, and that's P-E-A-C-E in emotional well-being. Sunita, it's great having you. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Philip. It's great being here, so thank you for having me.
0: And I want to make sure everyone's aware that Sunita was kind enough to have me on her radio show about a year or so ago, and uh, it's always nice to know that there's a there's, uh, more than one person going down this road, but let's talk about let's talk about your book for a second here. What led you to this concept of the transcendent mind, sunita
1: Well, actually, it started off, Philip, when I uh, qualified as a psychotherapist. I what basically happened was that. I was seeing clients and what I was realising was that the traditional therapeutic, psychotherapeutic techniques um, were not necessarily successful a lot of the time. Um, And then of course I'd have clients sometimes that would come in with no major issue going on but they just felt a sense of emptiness um, or a void within. And you know really as I started to, to just really look at this field in more detail, the question that I started to ask myself was well. Who am I? You know, I mean, you don't. It's not so much about the clients. It's who am I, and if I don't know who I am at the very core, how can I possibly go on and help other people? And that's really when I started to look outside of the box, so to speak, um, and go further than just traditional psychology, and really have a look at, um, you know, what else was out there. And of course, Philip, you know, the, the key thing is that. I'm not the first person in psychology, obviously, to, to, to come up with this concept. You know, we have like Jung, for example, the collective unconscious. Um, we have Maslow, who is known quite often for his peak experiences. But what a lot of people don't know is that peak experiences were first termed mystical experiences. So this idea that there's a, a grander being or, you know, we're connected to something deeper, um, it, 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 goes, it goes far back.
0: So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think what's what's happening here is that we're starting to realize that a lot of these sort of old mystical ideas are actually real, and we're trying to put them in modern language so that people could wrap their their arms around them, and so that they could bring them into their lives. And I think that that's something you do well in your book, because yeah, there are so many other illusions to the one mind but the way you put it which is that in order to really heal ourselves and and i and and we don't really mean here spiritual healing i think you mean you mean physical healing as well that we have to understand who we are and if we are really part of the one mind or a transcendent mind and we're not uh realizing that then that can't be a good thing for our health. Is, is that sort of the way you're, you're approaching this?
1: Absolutely, I, you know, again, it really comes down to that question, well, who are we, you know, that if we only know part of the story um, of, of who we are, then surely it's gonna leave us short of tools to actually help us um, in life generally, you know, um, especially with emotional healing. So yes, we're aware that we're a body. We know that we have a mind. Um, but then of course we get into the, the intangible stuff. So we start to look at the, the idea of a soul perhaps, you know, or or God, you know, and, yeah. and it's really about looking at these um concepts, let's let's say not necessarily from just a spiritual perspective where it's an idea being that, you know, yes, we have a soul or yes, there is a greater being. But for me, it was very important to actually start looking in places that could begin to give some sort of validation, you know, that could these concepts actually be true? Because I'm <laughs> quite scientific. Yeah. So I'm like, you know, I'm, I, I do tend to question everything because I like to make sure that, you know, I've got, I've got a well-rounded sort of idea of what's going on um, and that's really, you know, I'm sure you've read in the book when I started to have a look at near-death experiences and of course what I didn't realise at the time was that actually near-death experiences are an academic field of study you know, yeah. that there have been um, of course studies published in peer-reviewed journals and I, I wasn't aware of this so for me it was very, very interesting to listen to stories um, about people that have had such experiences and and, you know, almost come face-to-face with God, so to speak. Uh,
0: what do near-death experiences tell us about the transcendent mind, Senita?
1: Well, it appears, Philip, that, you know, and, and again, I'm very um, honest and open when I say this, that the truth of the matter is, is that the book that I've written, I've written from sort of looking at near-death experiences, um, the quantum side, parapsychology, but I think the truth of the matter is that we never really, well, certainly from where I'm standing from, I don't know to the T exactly what the truth is. Right. You know, I think unless somebody's had that subjective experience, um, they're able to stand uh, in a place and say that, okay, this is the experience that I have had. So that's the first thing that I say to people, that, look, keep an open mind and see how you feel about the material. But the way that I felt about it and, and what I learned from near-death experiences with regard to the transcendent mind was that you know people were having these experiences philip where they were meeting deceased loved one, loved ones or they were having encounters with encounters with um divine beings um jesus figure like figures um you know other spiritual figures and some people even god you know would say that i've had an encounter with with god and the interesting thing about this philip is not so much just the encounter but actually, it's how it changed the person when the person came back to the, you know, earthly realm, so to speak. Yeah. They would be kinder, more compassionate. They weren't afraid of death. The outlook to life was completely different. Um, they didn't take life so seriously anymore, you know? Yeah. Um, and when I looked at the outcome of what these people were experiencing, I thought, well, isn't that interesting? Because is that not what we try to achieve when we look at psychotherapy? That actually, when a person comes in for psychotherapy, that is exactly the the the, the end product that we're heading for. That you come in for therapy because you're looking for a sense of inner peace, right? Yeah. Yes, so, yes. I became very fascinated with this idea that what is it about the near-death experience that? you know, that makes you, that has changed your perception about the way that you're experiencing life. So, and of course, a lot of the, the case studies were sort of saying, well, you know, as my soul, let's say, left my body, I became very aware that I was extrasensory. So it, it felt as if I was in all places at the same time. It wasn't just limited to my five physical senses. Um, I felt as if there was a deep connection to, to everything else around me. You know, so and I think just reading this material and really looking at a vast range of cases, that was enough for me on a personal level, Philip, to actually experience um, a shift in consciousness. Yeah,
0: and I think that uh, the near-death experience realm uh, or or literature is really starting to make some inroads uh, into mainstream science, as you say, and this is one of the amazing phenomenon that it's occurring right now I think out there in science and that is when the evidence builds to such a state that it cannot be ignored science itself has to begin to change and this is something that of course I'm a big advocate of and and you know it all comes out of uh, Thomas Kuhn's The Structure of Scientific Revolutions that great book uh, I think it was called one of the if not the greatest book in the 20th century, one of the 10 best. But that was the book where, you know, Thomas Kuhn in, invented the word paradigm and about how paradigms have to change when existing theories don't explain everything. But I think that the near death experiences is, is really something that's caught my attention, frankly, Sunita, in the in the in the last year or so, uh, more and more because of the validation of them and the fact that in the Newtonian model, which you talk about as well, there really is no, there's really not a good explanation for them.
1: Um, Yeah, you're you're totally right, Philip, there's no space. Um, Right. And you know, it's interesting, Um, and and I'm I'm glad we're having this conversation, actually, because I haven't had this conversation with many people, that, what was really interesting was that when I was researching near-death experiences, um, it was very very interesting looking at almost like the proponents for near-death experiences and the skeptics um, you know for for near-death experiences and it's it's so interesting because with the Newtonian model it's I don't think it's very inclusive so to speak Um, and you know one of the major arguments with near-death experiences is that well A lot of people will say well you know they're hallucinations perhaps um, or as you're dying we don't know what's happening in the brain so it could just be a brain phenomena that you're you're experiencing Um, and of course what we know is that when a person dies, clinically dies the heart stops beating within sort of I think it's a range of about 10 to 30 seconds the blood flow to the brain stops. Um, And, of course, if you have no blood flow to the brain and if the brain stops functioning, then the question is, well, how is it that a person is able to come back and actually recall accurately what's happened in the space that they've been clinically dead? Um, And then it's been verified correct by the medical staff, let's say, that has been in the room, you know? Yes. Um, And what was really interesting for me was that the arguments that the sceptics put forward. Now, I make very clear, Philip, when I say that I'm not saying that sceptical arguments are not valid, because I do actually think that there is a place for everything, you know. So it's not so much about well, you're wrong and we're right, but it's a case of well, actually, you know, you may have a point in some cases that actually some people may be hallucinating, perhaps, you know, um, and, and we don't we don't know that. But my point also is that we have cases that we just cannot there's no other explanation for, you know, and I talk about these in the book, um, having, gaining access to information that you possibly couldn't have, have had before. Um, and of course, the famous case of uh, Dr. George Rodenaya, who was dead for three days, clinically dead for three days in the morgue. Um, yes. and, and it was when they went to do his autopsy that he actually, uh, he, he, he came alive again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. you look at cases like this and you think, how does that even happen? Yeah, and I th- the Newtonian model.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and for those who are, you know, the sharp distinction here between the Newtonian model and the what we're talking about this near death experience there's a very sharp distinction. And I think this illustrates it which is that we we really modern science is following the, the, the Newtonian model, which means that we are only our bodies, we are only dust, we are only particles. And when that body dies, that's it kaput. There is nothing else. There is no afterlife. There is no other realm. There's no other dimension. Uh, mind is simply an outgrowth of the particles in the brain. And what what we're saying here, and if you actually do the research, uh, and you mentioned P.M. Atwater, who I had on my show a couple months ago, who's, who's very, very good research and one of the top world's world's top researchers in near-death experiences is that you point out, Sunita, that there are cases where the brain is dead, everything else is dead, yeah. but but then the patient comes back and they tell about an experience they had about visualizing the medical room, the people in the room, the greeting cards that somebody was buying for them. There's just amazing, amazing stories. And I guess the other point I'll add here to show that there is something going on is that if you go to the scientific world the the, the neuroscientific world and you ask them well what is consciousness there's a lot of hand waving a lot of question marks because the question about how consciousness arises from the matter of the brain is also called the hard problem of consciousness and if you research yeah. that nobody really knows yeah. so there's That's mysteries right. on both sides
1: there's there's absolutely you know you're absolutely right in what you're saying um and it's it's again it's you know it's it's an interesting concept to have a look at and, and a somewhat you know um mind stretching concept if you yeah. guess, um to have a look at but near death experiences are definitely you know one area, not only that philip you know when we actually look at this is the other thing that i I found very interesting which i'm sure you'll probably um relate to because obviously your work. You did a lot of work around um, looking at the quantum phys- physics side, didn't you? If I yes. remember correctly yeah. from your book. And what's really interesting is actually our research methods and the way we're actually researching certain things. And then we get into the whole question, of course, about the observer effect. You know, so yeah. then we get into the idea of well, there's the proponents, there's the skeptics. So even if we are trying to study this sort of stuff, um, you know, in a, using the Newtonian model um we have the question to be asking well does it actually depend on the person who's actually undertaking the research that you know if you are a skeptic do your own biases and do your own views actually affect the outcome that you're having so it's a very delicate um it's a very delicate topic to be studying you know
0: yeah yeah absolutely this is philip camella this is conversations beyond science and religion i'm speaking with Sunita Pantani, the author of the new book The Transcendent Mind: The Missing Piece in Emotional Well-being, and we're talking about how uh modern science itself is moving to this notion that there is more to life and more to the world than particles in motion and that this idea of the transcendent mind is starting to gain more and more currency. Now, now, one thing that that comes across here uh, from your books, Anita, and that when you were talking earlier, is that we we tend to put things in categories, particularly in this in this country. And and by that, uh, my example would be uh, spirituality and science. We tend to go to uh, different buildings to pursue each of those endeavors. We go to synagogues, churches, temples for spirituality. maybe we go to the meditation room um, but then we go to someplace else to practice science and we sort of separate the two. And I think that one thing that, that I get from your book, The Transcendent Mind, is that to be healthy, we need to incorporate these ideas into our into our daily lives. We need to be more uh, holistic in in, yeah. in our in our daily lives. Now, is that is that right? Is that?
1: Yeah, I would say that that's accurate. And you know, I think we we do sort of live in a dichotomous um, yeah. world. Um, and you know, the key. I mean, you know, here's the thing, Philip. When you look at, let's say, day and night, for example, as a dichotomy. All right. Right. We do not we do not judge nature the way that nature is for its dichotomous. Facet, so to speak, so day and night um tied in tied out you know the the way that the seasons change we 're seeing dichotomies play out all the time in nature, but we have a we have an acceptance for them, you know we have yes. an idea that well we don 't see you as two completely separate things that that one is better than the other you know there's a place for a day and there's a place for for the night and it's that sort of thinking um that I would like to bring to the you know the idea of actually the way that we live that Science and religion, you know, you're right, we tend to categorize them, but actually they sort of come together quite nicely as well, you know, almost like um, two sides of the same coin. That rather than looking at things so rigidly and saying, well, this is science and this is religion, actually looking very closely and looking for the similarities or moving past the dichotomy, so to speak, um, in a way that we can, you know, we can work with both of them. Because ultimately, I think when you're looking at science and and religion or spirituality again you know what we're finding is this idea that well hang on a minute you know science is beginning to validate what some of the spiritual texts have said centuries and centuries ago you know yes so i don't think it's about separating the two i actually think it's about looking for similarities and, and, and making it work in your life in such a way that you're able to incorporate it all into your life as opposed to putting it into categories as such
0: yeah and i i think that the one thing that um that we have in common and a lot of people that i interview on the show think the same way but but i'm scientifically minded as well and i know you are as well and it's not as if you throw science out the window when you start opening your mind to these other dimensions of human experience because i think that uh we tend to confuse the method of science with some of the conclusions of newtonian science and when someone says science it's such a heavy meaning laden term that it, it sort of brings in all of these findings that some of which are no, i don't think are true but if you look at science as a method as a method of questioning of testing of repeatability of objective evidence that I'm never going to depart from that, and I, I think that that's I think that's sort of what you're saying, right? I mean, it's it's you can't. I mean, we we tend to think they can, that science and spirituality cannot coexist, but really, in my opinion, materialism and spirituality have a hard time coexisting, or naturalism, that some people would call it. Those those two have a have a difficult. Way, uh, time of getting together, because materialism tends to rule out the spiritual.
1: Absolutely, and wouldn't it be wonderful if we could look at them as disciplines that actually strengthen one another, yes. as opposed to um, separate yes. one another? Because like you're saying, you know, Philip, you're, I, I would agree with you um, wholeheartedly when you say that, you know, looking at the scientific method... I mean, the scientific method and observation is a gift, um, as I see it, because it helps you to actually validate and move forward. And, and you know, it, it helps you to let go of um, the old wives' tales, so to right. speak. You right. know right. That, that not everything spiritual, or this is just my personal opinion, I should say, that not everything that we come across spiritually um, is necessarily um, the truth. You know, right. um, and, and and it's the same with science. Not everything that we come across with the Newtonian materialistic model is the truth. But when you begin to kind of use one to help validate the other, we end up in a stronger position if we actually bring the two together. I mean, and it's you know it's not just about the um, the spirituality and the materialism in terms of science and religion. When we look at ourselves as individuals, um, you know, we have the physical body but we also have um, this subjective feeling that there's something more to us than meets the eye when we have deep meditative experiences or subjective experiences such as near-death experiences. You know, we don't sort of say that we're one or the other. We bring it together and we say that, well, you know, a lot of people will say, I'm a spiritual being having a human experience. We don't disregard one or the other. We we learn how to bring them together so that we can make most out of where we are.
0: Yeah, and I think that this is one of the, you know, key issues right now uh, in this whole field, which is what objective evidence is there for such things as near-death experiences and, say, parapsychology. What objective evidence? And because one uh, way of looking at science is science wants to see it. They want it to be proven. They want to put it into, bring it into the laboratory and hook up electrodes to your brain and have you prove to them that there is such a thing as a near-death experience. And some of it is provable such as you mentioned Dean Radin and the and the research that he he and others are doing on parapsychology and then there are the anecdotes uh, from PM Atwater and then there's uh, proof of heaven Edmund Alexander's all sorts of all sorts of stories anecdotes that are starting to i think rise to this level of objective evidence but but one of my arguments here by the way is that we, we shouldn't be forced to subject the truths or the findings of the transcendent mind or spirituality to the methods of materialism whoever yeah. said whoever said that we had to be tested by the methods of I I agree let's test it by the methods of science but who who said that we that it's only true if it if it meets the test of materialism it's sort of a almost a kangaroo court there yeah
1: yeah, absolutely. I absolutely agree with 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 what you're saying, you know. Um yeah, it's again, it just comes down to this idea of again, what you talk about with your work that science as we know it from the materialistic perspective, it's um quite a narrow-minded approach.
0: Yes. Well, the I, I like to I like to to now uh move to something that's really a challenging topic that you that you cover in your book really well and that a lot of people um get all um sort of puzzled over this one and and that is it, it you know how if there is one mind then then what about the many how can we be both an individual and part of one and i know myself people have come up to me and said you know well i don't really feel like i'm part of one a part of one thing and it's yeah. so so how, how do you confront that question
1: well, there are a number of ways. The first thing that I would say, Philip, is that when I started to do my research, it was actually when I came across the Course in Miracles okay. that I, you know, came across this concept of, well, there's one mind and that one mind is split into lots of individual minds um, and, you know, that that would be us. And when you actually put our individual minds together, we reunite and become one mind again. Um, so that was A Course in Miracles. And then I came across um, the Bhagavad Gita um, and the Upanishads and the Vedas um, and again similar sort of concepts being conveyed that there was an all-pervading um, consciousness like if you look at the Bhagavad Gita for example it talks about you know the the all-supreme Brahma um, that manifests has different uh, manifestation facets so you have um, Ishva which is the, uh, the the Godhead and then you have um Bhukruti, which is uh, the uh, the nature, and then you have the Jivatma, which is our individual um, selves. You know, yeah. um, so you see elements of this coming by. And there, there was a beautiful um, example that I'd, I'd read about an ocean, and one of the ways the only way that I can describe it is that you know if you have a big ocean um, and you take a droplet off that ocean, now you can take a droplet and place it a hundred miles away from the ocean, but the the, the droplet still has it is still the water it has the same properties the same qualities um you know in essence it is still the ocean so in that way it is able to be individual as well as connected to the whole of the ocean and a very obvious um or or direct way that i would say to people who would say that i don't see the oneness i don't see how we're how we're all connected and what i would say is you know it's, if you just stop and you just look right under our noses, Philip, we can see, so for example, the room that I'm sitting in at the moment, okay, I, this is what I can see. I can see a wall. The wall is connected to a picture um, which is on the wall. The wall is also connected to the floor. The floor is connected to a lamp. The lamp is connected to a desk. Now the desk, although it seems as if the desk is in uh, standing in isolation, it isn't actually because the desk is connected to the air which of course is you know some sort of a a substance which is then connected to me. So when we actually really just look around you and you will see that everything is connected to something that although it appears to be separate when you really have a think about it there is no s- space in between so to speak because everything is connected to to everything else. Do you see what I'm saying? Yes,
0: yes. And I think I think that that, that puts it in very in very concrete terms, and I think you mentioned this in your book, but one of the metaphors for this is the famous uh, Edgar Mitchell um, vision of the planet Earth when he was coming back on one of the Apollo missions, and uh, the the image of the planet Earth viewed from outer space as being one one planet where yeah. everybody is you know everybody is connected in some way or the other and then you have the internet which is another sort of metaphor for a web of connections and you know it's 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 as if it's as if um you know the entire physical world is a metaphor for the for the uh for the one mind and 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 I've mentioned this a lot in the show but that was really uh Ralph Waldo Emerson, who said something like "nature is a metaphor of the human mind," just to show you that that we tend to be going in cycles with some of these concepts. We we yeah. we keep sort of uncovering, you know, we articulate them and say, "Well, I guess somebody else may have come up with the same thing." And and to okay. me, to me, that always means, well, maybe we're onto something. Um
1: no. You know, I think not only that, Philip, I think everybody else keeps coming up, this is what I believe, you know, with the same thing, because there is only one thing in existence. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. that's another way to (laughs) look at it. We're going to, eventually, but, you know, the more that a person has that that deep shift in, in consciousness, it's so funny, because it's like, you know, a lot of the time people are expecting to really, let's learn something new, but it's like, you know, seriously, I mean, really depending on our levels of perception and how we are developing individually in terms of our consciousness there's going to come a point where every single person is saying the same thing in their own unique you know yeah. um, expression i mean you know just just take a look for a minute philip i mean we, we talk about it um you talk about it as materialism and science i bring it to psychotherapy some of the open-hearted business people will apply the same concepts to business and when you break it all down that is what you're going to find that Oh, that's exactly what you're saying, but you're just using a different language, because there is only one singular truth, and I think that's what I try to get across in the book, that, you know, folks, we are one, learn how you operate, and just watch how your life changes.
0: Yes, this is Philip Camella. this is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, I'm speaking with Sunita Pantani, the author of the new book, The Transcendent Mind, The Missing Piece in Emotional Well-Being, and there is a point here that I think that I think you do I don't know if anyone's done this before which is sort of bringing bringing these concepts of the transcendent mind and the one mind into psychotherapy and using as a method of of healing and we've talked about it a little bit but maybe you can give us an example of how this really works uh, maybe with one of your patients or something I mean what 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 it really means to use this notion of transcendent mind as par, as a healing technique
1: ok so that's a very good question now again the first thing that I would say is that we first of all need to understand so I look at Um, let's say healing Um, before I before I use the patient as an example I tend to look at healing that as having four elements that we need to address okay Um, and they're very uh, sort of vague isn't the word that I'm looking for um, generic let's say so the first element is understanding emotional wounding okay so really understanding um, how wounding occurs with us on a personal level Um, The second element is understanding emotional healing. Now here's the thing Philip, to understand emotional healing, we first got to have an idea of the transcendent mind so we've got to play around with the concept that hang on a minute, if we are all one, then technically there is a place within us that is already healed because if there is only one mind that weaves within absolutely everything, it would mean that You know, as human beings, there is that place of peace within us, and that actually everything else is um, sort of layered patterning, so to speak, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, beliefs and habits um, and layers that we accumulate. So that's understanding emotional healing. Now, the third uh, element that I talk about is the tools that we can use, and the fourth is the role of nutrition. Okay, so that's a very general overview of how. I begin to bring the transcendent mind into um, healing. Now, coming back to this idea of really looking at what emotional healing is, and this is really where the transcendent mind is becomes quite pertinent because actually what I've come to realize throughout my own practice um, is that there came a point, Philip, when I stopped looking at theory and for answers that, well, how does this work and how does this work? And actually I started to ask myself some very, very basic questions you know look at your clients how are they progressing and you know it wasn't many of them didn't have um an instantaneous healing so for many of them it took time and the healing was gradual and i know that that's definitely been the case in my own personal case that bit by bit step by step i've gotten better um you know um over the years but the one thing that i learned that i observed i should say with the transcendent mind was that There's a certain amount, Philip, that we can do. Okay, so let's have a look at you and I, for example. If we want to change a particular thing, um, there are certain steps that we can take. So, for example, we might find that talking to somebody helps to alleviate some of the, the energy that we're carrying. We may find that we start to change our thoughts or implement certain, again, behavior modification techniques. But then there comes a point, and this is where the transcendent mind gets involved, where we can't do any more than that. We can't take a conscious concept of healing and say, right, this is how I'm going to heal, this is how long it's going to take me, and this is how it's going to happen. Okay, with every person. There may be some people that can do that, but not everybody is able to do that. So when we look at that, what we come to realize is that there is a part within us, which is the transcendent mind, that actually comes in, I believe, and does the healing for us. So, you know, we talk about co-creation or we talk about co-manifesting. Well, I like to use the term co-healing, that actually we do not do all the healing. And for a vast majority of the clients that I work with, when they look back, Philip, they will say that, you know, Sunita, I can't put my finger on it. I don't know exactly when the healing has happened. But all I know is that six months have passed and I'm a different person today than who i was six months ago so it's about this idea of there's a place for you to do and then there's a place for you to stop relax and be and trust that the healing is going to take place i don't think there's a single person on this planet um actually, there may be i shouldn't i shouldn't ever say that they' definitely isn't, um, you know, but I, I think with the vast majority of people, nobody's actually going to be able to put their finger on it and tell you this is exactly how healing happens. this is what happens to your spirit, this is what happens in your brain, this is what happens you know in in your body so there's this element of a mystery as to how we hear, and I think that's where the transcendent mind comes in
0: what, what's a practical example of the of emotional wounding?
1: Um, So, a practical example would be, um, let's say, for example, somebody who has witnessed, let's say, a world war, okay? Okay. Okay. And they've witnessed a lot of killing um, and some detrimental circumstances. And it almost leaves, it's as if the psyche can't deal with um, quickly enough the effects of what the person has witnessed so this creates an emotional wound that we carry around within us you know and this can then manifest later on as post-traumatic stress disorder let's say or if we bring it back to you know a simpler example it may just be that as a child um you know if you were teased uh, for being overweight, let's say, and you, you're hearing the same message over and over, it creates a wound within us, an emotional okay. wound, I which, see. you know, needs healing because it needs correcting and it needs accepting, um, because it isn't the truth necessarily. You know, it wounds us to the very core, and yeah. it shapes our very belief system and yeah. Our perception.
0: Yeah, that that's that's good. And so, is this is this the intention and allowing, it, 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 that that you talk about? It, in other words. Absolutely. In other words, there's not necessarily a direct line to, to the healing process. It's not as if you take a pill and it will cure the wound, the emotional wound. It's not Absolutely. like a magic bullet, right? No. No, it's, it's, more like, it's more like get it out of your system, express it, and, and then sort of let the universe work for you kind of thing.
1: That's right. right. Again, it comes back to this idea, Philip, of happening in layers. You know, I can't tell you the number of clients that I've worked with um, that, again, you know, that people come in and it's like, I'm, I'm in really bad pain emotionally. Um, I need some help and I just need to heal now. I can't cope with the anxiety. And the first thing I'll say to someone is, look, there are many different modes of uh, healing modalities out there, but the way that I work, um, I tend to work very much try you know try to facilitate or help this person facilitate a deeper level of healing which i'll come on to in a moment and i'll say to them, look this is going to take time because you know when we when i stand back when i look we are on a on a journey throughout life that throughout life we don't really stop learning and healing as we're moving along life you know right um so it is a case of that it's having the intention that, okay, I want to heal. These are the steps that I'm taking. So I'm working hard on changing my belief system. I'm changing some of the practical aspects of life. So I'm making more time for myself. I'm beginning to meditate. But then it comes down to this idea of, okay, now I need to allow the healing to happen. Does it? Ma- does that necessarily mean that once you've healed over one particular issue that it's not going to come back? not necessarily it may come back you know and sometimes i believe that it comes back to test us just to see that have i really healed from this so i do believe that in some cases it will continue to push until you're in that place where you have a deep level of acceptance for what it is you know and your experience and really ultimately um when love fills the heart that's what it comes down to because emotional healing um, and wounding what wounding does Philip is that it closes off, you know off some of the love so if you imagine that when you're born you're born like with this open heart and of course as a transcendent mind it's like an open heart of love but through experiences and through wounding we sometimes cover That up, you know, if you just imagine covers coming down on parts of our heart. And then as we start to work through those covers and and that wounding, we, you know, begin to um, uh, express who we really are, which is a loving character. Yes, we have boundaries, but, you know, we're able to, we're coming from more of a loving, compassionate place for both ourselves and for others.
0: Is this, is this, is there a relationship between um, this approach and prayer? Or meditation. I mean, is there? It sounds. It sounds like there's some overlap.
1: Absolutely, um, it, there is. And again, it comes down to what we were talking about before. That right. you know, meditation and prayer is perhaps a different set of words or a different language to describe. Um, you know, what it is that we're we're looking at in psychotherapy. So again, coming back to that idea of labels um, or separation that we were talking about. Well, this is. Uh, psychotherapy. Um, this is religion, and this is prayer, and this is meditation. But actually, in truth, when you put it together, you know, you will begin to realise that they're all tools. They're all tools that are working on uh, to, to achieve the same end result You know, and more and more as well, Philip. You're seeing, you know, meditative techniques, relaxation, breathing, centering yourself. You know, taken from uh, Zen practices, and I think a lot of. Um, religions have some form of meditation or prayer, let's say, uh, contemplative practice, and we're beginning to really bring that into to psychotherapy, because ultimately it's the same thing that works, coming back to that same thing again.
0: Yeah, and, what, and what's so, uh, I think, beautiful about this is that, viewed from one perspective, it's, we're sort of putting a scientific principle behind why things like meditation or prayer works. And the scientific principle being what I started the show with, which is that we are part of one transcendent mind. And if you start off with that as being as the scientific principle, we start giving ourselves a reason why this works.
1: Exactly. Right? And that's my, that's my point exactly in the book, that yeah. we can't heal ourselves if we don't know the truth of who we are. Right. And you're, you've, you've put that so beautifully, Philip, that... Can you imagine if we trained our generation of today now i'm not taking it from just like you're saying not from a spiritual perspective let's take it from um you know a non-spiritual or a non-denominational perspective and the scientific principle of here are the studies here are studies to show that the effect that prayer has um the effect that meditation has on the body now and, and obviously, that there seems to be this idea that there's one field that connects everything. Let's use that as our foundation. Now, can you imagine if we started to view life from this perspective, Philip? This is what it would look like. I would look at you and I would say, OK, I don't agree with everything that you're saying. But deep down, there are studies to show that, you know, it looks like we're connected. So I'm just going to accept you for who you are. Um, it would be easier for us to show love, compassion, kindness. And of course, you know, when we come across cases like extreme cases where I've worked with people who have had family members murdered, let's say, and they can't find it in their hearts to forgive, but they understand that by holding on to the resentment, it's it's literally killing them. Right. So they've got to find some way to, you know, this idea of forgiveness isn't about by forgiving you i'm saying that it's okay what you're doing this is not what we're saying by forgiving what we're actually saying is that i need to let go i need to allow you out of my mind my psyche because if i don't the resentment is going to have a negative effect on me and it's about looking at the other person and saying you know your behavior is not conducive at all it is not a it's not a not a nice behavior but what is it that's propelled you to do that where are you coming from how wounded must you be to, to you know, to step up and and take such an action, and again, we're not saying that they should be, you know, freed or or not not, um, you know, uh, shouldn't be reprimanded for their for their actions, but it's it's a different place coming from an understanding as opposed to um, complete and utter blame and more hatred. You see what I'm saying? Yes,
0: yes, yes. It it, it gives it gives a a sort of a deep rooted basis to understand sort of tragedy and and depression and uh and and the quote unquote bad things that happen to good people the the one thing as you were talking and and following up the the discussion about prayer i mean what what we see out in the world Sunita, is so many people who are to me they have one foot in spirituality and one foot in in materialistic science where we pray to an external god or statute to make to create a miracle for us as if as if the as if the force is outside of us and we're and we're and we're asking for a gift to be dropped down from heaven that will solve all of our problems and to me, that sounds again like a metaphor in my opinion, but what what you're saying, and I completely agree with you by the way, is that if the if the if the power is within us, the force is within us then that it's a it's a matter of us coming to understand that we are part of this this substratum this this foundation of of mental energy or or i I recently called it the energy of being. That is the source of healing, because it 's also the source of the world, <laughs> and so, and so it, got it you know it, it's yeah you 've got
1: it, and you know the, what I would say to add to that you know it, it, i used to, I spent a long time you know Philip saying that um exactly what you 're saying that okay, so the transcendent mind is within us um, and but then one day I kind of realized <laughs> that actually I think we are within the transcendent mind, there is. <laughs> the transcendent mind, yeah. you know, which is what you're saying. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's it's not even about um, necessarily finding that place within, although that's what we use because we can put it into words better that way, so to speak. But it's about understanding that we are within the transcendent mind. We are within consciousness. That, that is all that exists. You yes. know? Um, the Brahma, the Vishnu, the Mahesh, which you will may have an understanding when you look at the Bhagavad Gita, because I know you you've talked about that in your work, um, but when we look at it from that perspective, that is it. There is only that. And when we look at life from that perspective, you will find that there will be a lot more um, solutions. We'll will have more solutions at hand um, to deal with some of the issues that we struggle to deal with today.
0: Yeah, and there's and there's and there's so much here. And once again, this is Philip Camella. This is conversations beyond science and religion. I'm speaking with Sunita Pantani. The author of the Transcendent Mind, and we're talking about how instilling the truth of the notion that there is a transcendent mind, a one mind, uh, into our lives, but also into our health, our emotional well-being, uh, is not only a good thing to do, but it's also rooted, rooted in a in a deep truth, and and this sort of uh, leads me to another practical spin on this which is which is what does this all mean for the body because in the spiritual discussions people you know we tend to think that this is a a a a uh otherworldly or a mystical journey uh that has to do with our mind our our uh our well-being our attitudes, but but our bodies are something else, and our bodies do what our bodies do. In other words, in other words, we separate spirit and body. But what do you think about what this means for physical illnesses and the and and the body itself as we move through this this uh, development and understanding the transcendent mind? You know, Philip, I
1: think that the body is. A reflection of our innermost thoughts and beliefs about ourselves that's what I believe that the body is um, an essential component that we need in order to maneuver our way through life as we know it you know it's very interesting because quite often when people sometimes when they get onto the spiritual path um, they can sometimes disregard the body and not pay it as much attention um, and from my personal perspective, I think that um, the body is the vehicle, you know, that we are using to navigate our way um, on through this earthly experience that we're having. So I think that, you know, number firstly, I think that the body is communicating with us all the time on a very subtle level. Okay, now I'm actually running um, a workshop next Friday um, at the Bridge Between the Worlds. Um, which is near Virginia, I understand. (laughs) And on that, I'll actually be teaching people how to get in touch with that place within our body where the transcendent mind is within you. Okay, because quite often people tend to disregard the body, but the body is something that is communicating with us all the time. We need to learn how to listen to it. You know, so that's the first thing. The second thing is that really observing how our body is reacting to what we're thinking. Who have we become? what product, you know, our thoughts, our feelings, our emotions, um, you know, they cause us to act in particular ways. We know, we know that when somebody is stressed out, it has an impact on their physical health, for example. I mean, that's a well-accepted fact now, right? Right. Um, You know, so when we really tend to look very closely at, you know, your thoughts, feelings, emotions, all of these things have an impact on your body and your body is not something you know, especially with, with the whole body image thing that we've had going on in the right. last few decades. A lot of people um, that I've worked with in my practice have body image issues. I don't like the way my body is. I'm trying to make my body thinner or healthier or, you know, I mean, healthy is okay. But, you know, trying to fit a particular um, uh, frame, let's say, of, of what we're supposed to look like. But, you know, not everybody's body's supposed to look the same. and it's about really looking and listening to what is my body saying to me what does it need does it need healthful food does it need to be moved you know am i putting my body through too much is my job too stressful all of these things all of you know the body is right at the i wouldn't say right at the end but when you look at the cycle from the transcendent mind to the individual soul to the individual mind and then to the body it's a chain reaction and it's all connected so the body is you know, a manifestation of our innermost um, beliefs. Yeah, I, I
0: think that's beautiful, uh, Sunita, and I and I for one completely agree. And I think that you know this is the kind of thing that, uh, is can be tested in a, in a very interesting way. You know, I every every day during the week I have a walk from a train station to my to my office downtown, and just just looking at people, their facial expressions. Who they are is, is is really, or their body really is a reflection of who they are. It, it's sort of like even if you just take that as an hypothesis, and you say, "Well, let's see if this is true." It it really, I mean, we know that when people are happy or sad, that there's facial expressions that correlate with happiness, sadness, anger, joy, love, etc., etc. But yeah. what if that truth? Is 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 goes all the way down. In other words, it reflects their stress levels, their beliefs, their their uh, their li- their limitations, their self-imposed restrictions, uh, their culture. You know everything. It, it really is. It's 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 a beautiful way. I think it's a great way to think. in, in some ways, and and this is a deep topic right here. So and we're not going to have time to unwrap it all. But it to me it shows that we are responsible for who we are and yeah. that too many of us sort of think that well I am the way I am, I don't have any control over this I, I uh, you know, um, my body does what my body does, but to me I think it's healthier to imagine that you do have control and maybe we don't have complete control because who knows what the transcendent mind is up to, but but it's to me it's a very healthy way it's also more uplifting and promising it says that you know, I can, as I improve my inner self, I improve my outer self.
1: Absolutely, absolutely, Philip. And, you know, again, what you're saying is absolutely right that, you know, I would say that we might not have complete control about of, over what the outcome is, but we do have, we are empowered, we do have a responsibility, and we have um, the power within to at least take the steps, you know, listen to what our bodies are saying and, and respond respond appropriately you know we have that
0: so yeah yeah i think it's 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 also as i said it's a very um kind of a uplifting approach and just and just one more little thing here you talk about time and the healing benefits of time and you know there is that saying i mean you 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 put a different spin on it but there's a saying about time heals all wounds and, yeah. and so, why don't you just say a couple of things about where time fits into this?
1: I think um, you know it comes down to that that age old saying, doesn't it? That time is the greatest healer. Yeah. Um, and sometimes I think there's a, there's a, you know you've just got to have the faith faith, Philip, and the trust that you know there's a timing we do not have. We are not in complete control of the way that we function. That again you know it's just tying everything together there are certain things that we can do there are practices that we can we can participate in that we can hope will produce very good outcomes for us but then there comes a point where you just need to let go and let time do its thing you know um it's the idea that you know you don't know when the healing is going to happen some people see this with creativity you know they have like aha moments yeah? yeah we don't we don't know when that is going to happen so at the same time, it's paradoxical. In one sense, we need to give it all we've got, and we've, we've got to be very, you know, throw ourselves into this and give it all that we've got to be disciplined and, 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 you know, do the best that we can. But in another in another way, we've got to be willing to let go and give it time and just say, you know what? I'm doing my part. Now I need to just hang on, wait, and let the transcendent mind do its part. And you know the other thing, Philip, that even people that don't put in maximum maximum work you will see, as people sometimes get older, we often witness that people soften as they get older. Not everybody, but many people do. They become, they'll often, they'll become wiser and they'll say things like, you know, let it go. Life's too short. And they begin to recognize that because of the life experiences that they've had. So there is a deeper healing, a deeper shift going on in the background, which is taking time to weave its way through, you know? Yes. Um, But again, we, we do not have control. Time is the greatest healer, and we can only do what we can, and just, you know, again, wait for the magic to happen.
0: Yeah, it's sort of like uh, many of us grow impatient. You know, we ask ask for the perfect mate, and we want uh, him or her to be delivered tomorrow. And we ask for the best, you know, a new job, and we want it to happen. And it's sort of, to me, and, and this is something you're exactly right, over time... You start figuring out. Well, this is a this is a very intricate storyline, and things don't happen immediately because if they happen immediately, we would be in a state of chaos. It, yeah. you, it's sort of like the desires have to weave themselves through this long story, and that's where time comes in, and also it's where patience comes in. And speaking of patience. Uh, or time, we've run out of time, um, and uh, this went by very fast. Um, and you know, I want to again uh, tell everybody that this book, the Transcendent Mind that Sunita's written here, it's it's a really uh, sort of accessible uh, entry to a lot of these old concepts. But she puts it in a way that I think that most people will be able to to understand, and and also to um, to bring into their lives. Now, why to you just say a couple of things, uh, Sunita, about what you're up to. I know you're uh, in this country doing some workshops, etc. But how, if people want to know more about you and your schedule and how to get in touch with you, what what should they do?
1: Um, they can check out the website, which is www.sunita, that's S-U-N-I-T-A, Patani, P-A-T-T-A-N-I.com. Um, and if they go onto the events page they will see um the upcoming talks and workshops um that i have there is one going on on friday the 8th of may um at bridge between the worlds which i mentioned um and yeah if you enter your email also um into the homepage there very shortly i'm going to be sending out um sort of weekly um teachings practical steps that people can can take um in order to really put some of this stuff into practice
0: yeah, yeah, and that's great. And and just sort of, you know, as I said in the beginning, we, I think what is going on here is that we are all trying to put into words, into practical modern day language, these old truths, uh, because the old truths are still true, and it's it's a function of bringing them up to date and and into and, and terminology that people could appreciate is real and that has meaning to us and so the notion of transcendent mind whether we call it the, the transcendent mind the one mind uh the divine being all these all these concepts are pointing towards one thing which is which is that there is more to life than meets the eye there is uh it looks to be the case that there is one underlying spirit one underlying mind to what we call the world this is philip camela this is conversations beyond science and religion sunita it's always a pleasure talking to you i wish you the best of luck and we'll see you next week thank you for listening you've been listening to conversations beyond science and religion hosted by philip camela To find out more about Philip and his book, The Collapse of Materialism, visit thecollapseofmaterialism.com.